0: Welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, presented by me, Jimmy McLaughlin. Today is a bit of a different episode as we are joined by somebody who is not necessarily defined as an entrepreneur, but has one of the most interesting jobs that I've ever come across. Dr. Eliza Philby is a writer and speaker who specializes in generational intelligence, enabling companies to understand the generational shifts within politics, society, and the workplace. Her research incorporates all generations from baby boomers right through to Generation Z and even our generation of new babies, Generation Alpha. Eliza helps businesses understand how society is changing, especially in the post-pandemic age. But before this episode starts, a big thank you to our series partners, Octopus. Octopus was founded in 2000 by Chris Hewlett and Simon Rogerson, who sat in a living room using the yellow pages to get their first clients. Octopus now has 10 billion under management and employ over 750 people with a mission to invest in the people, the ideas and industries that will help change the world. Many companies like to say they back entrepreneurs, but Octopus really put their money where their mouth is. And throughout this series, We'll be hearing more about where they are backing the next generation of great entrepreneurs. Eliza, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Oh,
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: And so one of the questions that we often ask our guests at the end is if they could go back in time for 24 hours to any point in history, when and where would they choose? And as a historian, I feel that that has to be the question that comes first.
1: Gosh, yeah. I mean, I have a number of answers to this question, but um, the one I'm most enthused and excited about would be to transport myself back to early Hollywood in the early 20th century in California, where the likes of Charlie Chaplin and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. were setting up those studios and using for the first time that technology around moving imagery and creating those silent movies that much like TikTok today are using visual visuals to tell stories for the first time must have been so exciting so innovative and actually transformed the 20th century as a result
0: and here we are doing this (laughs) (laughs) non-visual no I agree with you and it's um It's fascinating learning why that point, Hollywood, at that point in the world became the kind of hub for sort of, you know, the future of visual entertainment, which, as you say, was such a big dominant of the 20th century.
1: Yeah, I mean, you could write a thesis, pretty comprehensive one that would say actually California has invented the 20th century, not only because of Hollywood and Silicon Valley, but wellness culture you know a reinvention a westernization of yoga and and healthy eating veganism I mean everything we kind of associate with modern contemporary life actually probably emerged from California and the origins of that the early kind of seeds of that date back I think to those those pioneers in the early 20th century setting up and using that technology back in back in the early 20th century so yeah that would excite me big time.
0: Tell us what a modern-day historian is and what a generational historian is. You've given quite an interesting insight already with that California answer, but how do you become one?
1: Um, So this is a career that I've entirely made up myself, okay? That doesn't make me a pioneer or an entrepreneur as such. I think it's just one that has... I've really adapted to, I think, the evolution of, of how people find knowledge and how they need knowledge and how they use knowledge. And let me explain what I mean by that is I started life off as an academic, um, a historian. I've always been a historian. I did my undergraduate in history, my BA in history and then my PhD in modern history. But I was a religious historian and I was interested in ideas and I was interested in values and beliefs. And I wrote my first book called God and Mrs. Thatcher, which is still available on Amazon. Um,
0: the two things you're not supposed to talk about at dinner parties, <laughs> politics and religion.
1: Yeah. And it was at a time, of course, when religion was very much in the news with a kind of the war on terror. And, and you know, we were rediscovering, weren't we, religion in the 21st century. And I was interested in the origins of Britain's transition to a multicultural, multi-faith society and why, in particular, how politicians use religion and then and then how how the power that not just the Church of England, but all faiths had in society. So that's what I kind of started life as. And I was kind of your atypical academic. I was teaching at King's College London. I was teaching modern history and and the kind of Thatcher years to those kids that were born after she left Downing Street. But actually, I sort of felt quite constricted by that. I was in a profession that was quite poorly paid um, didn't offer me a lot of security I'd worked really hard to get there but actually I was hitting my sort of early 30s thinking I don't actually have tenure and and a structure in my career yet which was worrying after 10 years apprenticeship and I thought you know what I'm gonna go it alone and actually have time the space to pursue the kind of research that I wanted to do and also share my knowledge with a much broader audience not just students and other academics but NGOs and, and charities and And businesses that were I think post-crash thinking much more about how business and society intersects and you've got also at the same time that rise of like TED talks and actually thirst for knowledge and that desire for story-based analysis and much more engaging content and an expectation that when you're a researcher and when you're you're doing research that you should also not only be able to research that stuff but also disseminate it to a broader audience and so I really zoned in on how can I be an effective communicator and how can I actually turn my knowledge into someone else's need and principally business that were I think really coming to grips with not only the, the ripples of the financial crisis but also changing demographics changing demands of their employees but also changing society with the rise of populism and Brexit going
0: ah
1: society is changing and so was so must we um, and really I suppose I sort of kind of pitched up my stool and said hey I can tell you <laughs>
0: You go from kind of religion and, and politics and publishing a book in that and doing a PhD in it. What was the moment that kind of you f- that triggered the sort of generational side and you found that that was the, the spark? Because that's so much of people's challenge in their 20s, right? It's like you feel like you should know the world and you, know, you kind of have all these milestones at 18 and 21. And actually, it's not that sort of straightforward. How did you realise that it was kind of generations that was your passion?
1: There's a lesson here and, and without sounding too trite, I think it's really important that as we evolve as individuals to work out what's our passion and how how can that become someone else's need? And then you can obviously monetize your passion. But essentially I'm 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 someone that As a historian, I I was studying the 1980s and studying that decade in which I grew up, that Thatcher period, um, the Cold War, um, and and really interested in how that had shaped my generation, not just my parents' generation, but our generation, the millennial generation, and the kids of the 80s, how they were developing and obviously hitting the world of work in sort of post-crash, and how we were evolving into very different beasts. And part of the answer was what had gone on in the 80s but then i was sort of interested in in how we were really differentiating ourselves and our ultimately our values um, and that's the connection with religion, I suppose. I was interested in values, not just behaviours, but beliefs um, and as a motivator for behaviours. Um, and so that's when I started writing and talking about millennials. And then I thought, you know what, I'm a historian. I've got to backdate this. I've got to go right back and see how these generational categories evolved. What do they not answer? What kind of questions do they actually raise rather than answer? And so I was kind of starting to evolve that expertise in a much broader sense rather than just focus. Folk- Focusing on millennials, but I have to say, it bore out of something entirely self-interested, which is I was really intrigued as to how our generation was different, um, and 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 very confident in the knowledge that the answer wasn't just technology and the smartphone, which I kind of felt a lot of people were talking about, and and house prices as well, and I just felt that actually you needed a much broader understanding of how generational shifts were were happening, but I'm also I would say someone that is obsessed with time and time passing. I became um, a really, you know, a sort of confident in this career, a really kind of transitional moment in my life, where my father, a baby boomer, um, passed away. Um, within eight months, um, my, my son was also born. So that shift within my own personal circumstance, where I went from being the child within the family, to the parents, if you like, within the family and I I began to sort of parent my mother Um, and that weird transition that happens within all families where the, the, the daughter or the son begins to parent the parent but also I was a parent myself so I was in that transitional moment in my life where generational meaning had a lot more currency for me because if you think about it, you know, generational categories are abstract concepts, but they have real meaning within the family. And that's how that's the unit of time within a family. And so I suppose I without getting too deep, that was sort of partly the motivator as well.
0: No, well look, it's it's great to be deep. And that leads me on to question I wanted to ask, which is give us the broad definition of these generations. And I know you just said there that it's not it's not so easy to do, but we talk about boomers and millennials. What are the definitions of those? And also tell us, finish up by telling us about geriatric millennials, which you've been talking about.
1: <laughs> Let's start with the baby boomers, and that's that generation that was born really from the end of the Second World War, 1945 through to 1965. And that was a baby boom that really outlasted the immediate um, years after the Second World War, well into the 1960s. And they're the generation that, you know, were the benefactors of the social uh, liberalization um, of the 1960s and 70s, sex, drugs and rock and roll. And of course, then were the benefactors of the economic liberal reforms of the 1980s. And to put it crudely, you could say the history. The of the 60s became the yuppies of the 80s and are the benefactors of that culture as a result to the extent that you know, one in five baby boomers in the UK is a millionaire. And there is a lot of currency and truth in that notion of the baby boomers being the privileged generation. Not all of them, of course, because generational categories are a starting point and a generalization rather than a nuanced understanding. But let's just categorize the the boomers as that. The next generation we have is Gen X. And I think they're underrepresented and ignored because actually, first off, there's fewer of them. So that's that category born from 1960. 1966 through to 1980 and actually before they were known as Gen X which was a book written in the 1990s by Douglas Copeland an American author to give them sort of label they were known as baby bust and the reason why they don't have the same political economic and consumer power of the boomers is because there's just fewer of them women stopped having as many children and indeed the fertility rate has halved since the 1960s so they don't have the same economic power but they're actually really important transitional generation because they're the first generation to have personalized technology so they were the sonny walkman kids who became the crackberry adults they're the first generation to really witness and experience in britain at least the transition from being a predominantly white to a multicultural multiracial society and they're at the moment actually at the forefront i think of being the transition generation where they are the squeezed between looking after their parents still and at the forefront of the social care crisis but also looking after their kids Gen Z by and large. So they're a really important generation and actually also they're the generation where women started to outnumber men at universities. So within the workplace it was Gen X women that really pursued that whole work-life balance agenda which has been incredibly important. Next generation is millennials of which I am one and geriatric millennials, let me just qualify that term, are those so if the which millenni- includes
0: include Rishi Sunak, <laughs> Roger Federer, probably you and me.
1: The real power brokers in society right now. So that that's, you know, g- ma- the millennial demographic are those born from 1981 to 96. Now, the geriatric millennials are the sort of 1981 to 86. And they're the ones that can essentially, let's just define it by those that can remember dial up internet. But essentially, um, and they're important bridges, by the way, because they can sort of window into Gen X world, but also an insight into to early millennial culture as well but the millennial generation are the ones that have been defined obviously by the smartphone and what the smartphone did was create fluidity between your work life and your leisure life and break down that boundaries between those two uh, personas but also they are the generation I think that were told as kids go to school get to college go to university you will be guaranteed a middle class stable professional life well of course that has been that promise I think has been found wanting And, and of course they are the generation that has experienced rising housing costs, rising education costs, rising healthcare costs. And of course now they're no longer young, most of them are parents, rising childcare costs. And for for the affluent millennials, they have relied on the bank of mum and dad to fund the big ticket items in life. And they were the generation, of course, that where the economic culture, consumer culture was very much geared towards incentivizing experience-based purchases rather than assets. So we were encouraged to travel rather than buy a car you know if you think about baby boomers the driving license was the sort of identifier into adulthood for millennials travel is the ultimate status update um so we are experience-based purchasers and that's and yet we have sort of one weirdly i think one for in the 20th century and boomer aspirations of owning a home and one for in the 21st century where those things are completely unrealistic um, and, and just to finish off, there's Gen Z, of course, and that's those born from 1997 to um, 2010. And they are the kids that are, I would say, the COVID generation whose education, social groups, peer to peer relationships, economic prospects, all manner of their development has been impacted by COVID But also they are the generation that is fighting, you know, the the biggest cause of our life, which is climate change. And they are pioneering, entrepreneurial, video-led generation, most of whom have had a smartphone in their pocket since they were 13 and grown up on social media. So they're a very different entrepreneurial, I would say cynical, realistic, very interesting generation uh, compared to millennials. I'm quite envious. I wish I was a general Zer. So there you go. There's the four generations right now.
0: There's the four generations. I think what you say about um, Generation X almost being the, the forgotten generation mm. is, is particularly interesting because I think people could name the others. I mean, on that experience economy, I think it's um, obviously like a big move towards experiences. But a lot of it, as you say, is tied in with the status mm. and the fact that you can have an experience, but, you know, does an experience really exist if you don't upload it to either Instagram Facebook or, or Twitter. And so much of it remains that kind of ability to be able to demonstrate kind of success and so on. And I think that is particularly hard on the younger generation coming through because they're just surrounded by people looking like that they are smashing it the whole time and actually it's not
1: i i think gen z are much more savvy when it comes to technology than millennials i think millennials were like tick the t's and c's yeah upload not really worrying about their data their privacy transparency any of that i think actually the Gen Z are the ones that have, you know, a private Instagram account or a public Instagram account. They're not necessarily on Facebook because that's where their, you know, elderly auntie is. Then they're, you know, they're interested in Snapchat because it disappears. I think they're much more skeptical and much, I think, savvier when it comes to technology and how they use it. Um, I remember talking, I was interviewing a 21-year-old from Paris and he said to me, you know, I never upload a photo of myself on social media unless I'm in a suit. And I was like, "That's weird. You're 21. What are you doing?" And he was like, "No, I know that my net rep is my CV, my digital rep. Repute- you know, reputation. So
0: I was going to say, you might need to explain net rep for. Sorry, a net rep. My
1: my, you know, my internet reputation is my CV. It's it's my it's my digital legacy that you know future employers will look at. And I thought, gosh, I wish I'd thought like that at 21. Jesus." <laughs> Terrible photos of me, you know, drunk on Facebook that, are still there, um, and I had no consideration of that legacy. And you look at millennial parents and the way in which they're freely uploading pictures of their kids. I just think, I remember um, there was a news round um, uh, interview that they were doing with kids um, a couple of years ago. I saw that one of the, one of the kids interviewed, she was about 10 and she was like, oh, I, I don't think my mum should go anywhere near the internet. She can't use it properly. She's constantly uploading photos of me and I keep on telling her not to. And she was 10 and I just thought these kids are just so much savvier. And I think that level of sophistication and that wariness um, is a particularly acute amongst Gen Z who are also really conscious of the negative downsides. And you look on TikTok and it's actually, it's, it's very different from that filtered in instagram existence um that airbrush lifestyle it's much more real it's much more irreverent it's it's a bit like the silent movies that made in early hollywood in you know 1910
0: and what does the term influencer mean to you because i think it's one of the interesting things that we've explored a bit on this series you know ben francis and noel mack of jim shark in the first one for example and there's often a bit of disdain in in westminster and kind of you know, perhaps media elite circles about people wanting to be influencers. And I just think our knowledge and understanding of it is actually pretty skin deep, if that. And obviously, you are spending a lot of time with that generation that do want to do a lot of that and cite that quite regularly in various job surveys.
1: Do you know, I think I'll start by answering that question by referring to a conversation I had in Zurich about three weeks ago with an investment banker who was quite critical of influencer culture and was like, I can't believe these kids, all they want to do is spend time on holiday and take pictures. And I said to him, you don't realise how difficult it is Mm -hmm. to get (laughs) A, that polished, you know, aspirational image um, to to hit the algorithm at the right time, in the right way, uh, with the right hashtags. I mean, it's a real art form but it's also a slog and it's actually harder now than ever before the days of sort of instant overnight stars I think is is long gone so I think we should, we need to appreciate a how hard they work b how difficult it is to do and also what they're doing you know in terms of building a community uh, marketing their their brand their products building relationships with other brands you know these are amazing business skills these kids are generating from a very young age and they're pretty much doing it without you know going to Harvard Business School and and I I feel like that needs to be appreciated but I think we also need to realize that influencer culture is evolving and changing I think much faster than any other sector what works or used to work on Instagram doesn't work on TikTok and TikTok I imagine will be replaced by another app very shortly but when generation alpha gets a hold of their their own smartphones so you know I think I think we need to appreciate how fast that culture and that market is is work. I'm particularly interested in mummy influencers millennial mummy influencers and the way in which um, that sort of airbrushed lifestyle is of the sort of nuclear family because it's not just the mum of course it's the kids with the with the family um is portrayed on particularly Instagram and and how how you know you think about TV and how that developed you know it was all about selling soap operas soap powder in between in in between the TV shows and that's this you know none of it is new this is what these mummies are doing they are just taking charge of the the branding the advertising the marketing themselves and you know, it's in the one sense empowering, but in the other sense kind of quite scary.
0: Yeah, I agree with a lot of what you say there. And I think it's it's also interesting that it's become a bit of a catch-all term mm. because, like you say, it has to be engaging content. And effectively, it's almost growing up kind of in the noughties and having formative years there, you know, influences becoming uh, perhaps what the noughties kind of celebrity culture was about. But also it's like fundamentally... If you want to be an influencer, a lot of it is being an entertainer and so on. And people since the 60s have wanted to be pop stars and actors and actresses.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, do you remember all that kind of like everyone wanted to be a reality TV star and everyone wanted to be a celebrity and, and you know, people aren't selling their weddings to Hello! magazine anymore. They're selling them to Instagram. And I think there's a continual thread here um of creating content that is both aspirational and relatable. And that has always been that's going back to early Hollywood, the, the, and, and, and also humor, um, as well, there's certain things that human beings generally respond to, and, and it's essentially storytelling, and one of the things that I will say about Gen Z is I think they're incredible storytellers, uh, the way in which they are able to tell a story on TikTok in 60 seconds, and, Get that emotional kick out of the audience is extraordinary, and and actually we need to harness that rather than criticise that because companies now need to realise that this generation thinks, feels, learns, communicates in video. They don't Google something anymore; they YouTube it. And I remember talking to a um, a legal firm in London about this, and I was saying, you know, let's just hang on a minute. Let's just YouTube your company. Because if you Google it, you get your nice shiny website, but let's YouTube your company. And up popped up um, on the first hit, a really bad, critical video vlog from someone that had done work experience at this legal firm. And the second hit was a really naff and quite offensive archive footage of their uh, kind of like a Christmas party from the 1980s, where actually all the kind of, older male lawyers were kind of hitting on the young female secretaries. And it was like not the kind of image you wanted to <laughs> portray, portray for your legal firm. And I was like, this is what your new recruits are actually seeing.
0: Isn't that astounding that in the last 10 years, it's flipped and gone full circle, right? You talked about the sort of 23-year-old in Paris and their net mm. reputation. And that used to be people, employers kind of going through social media and all these things to assess people. And yet now, what an example that is of how the power could shift and people not being aware of it. What yeah, well, what predictions do you have for the next 10 years in terms of the future of work? Because... There's a lot of people talking about it at the moment with the pandemic and and so on. But very few really seem to have got their head around it yet.
1: Mm. And one of the things that I've really noticed in the last sort of 18 months speaking to companies, right from the beginning actually of the pandemic, was everyone made that shift to, and I'm talking obviously professional work environments here, quite easily to remote working. That happened. It needed to happen fast and companies adapted very fast because they needed to. What's taken the time is what happens next. And across the board from tech startups to legal services to accountancy firms, across the board, I can safely say there is a a serious degree of confusion, a level of defensiveness, particularly from employees who have been given this degree of autonomy that they don't want to give back. Um, And real insecurity from... Um, CEOs who think you know I'm not actually quite sure which way to turn and you know one of the things that I try and help companies understand is that firstly you know one of COVID was a warlike scenario and is going to have warlike ramifications because it was so long It was so protracted, it infiltrated every part of our lives and it was a global phenomenon. So its consequences are real and obviously none's more than in the area of work. Consumption, I think, is very different. But I also think that it accelerated change rather than being the change itself. And I think that there are shifts happening within or were happening and are still happening within the world of work that are outside of the disruption being caused by technology. So I remember going to all these conferences in 2019 and they were all built around disruption and that disruption was only really categorized in terms of technology. And I'm like no actually the true disruption is coming from people and in particular changing demographics rather than changing values as say so the, the three things I think are going to disrupt your business more than changing technology the first is hyper individualism and the way in which our smartphone in particular but culture more broadly I would add parenting and schooling to this is enhancing constantly our sense of individualism and that has profound impact on how we see and view our career so you know we used to have interviews with potential candidates and you would interview them I speak to a number of companies now and they feel like the candidate is interviewing the company. And that's because, you know, we have now smaller families, we have a, a demographic that is over-educated and in some ways overparented, and has a real sense that their career is one of individual fulfillment and destiny. And that's been happening since the 1960s, by the way. Baby boomers were the first ones to talk about work being one of purpose and fulfillment rather than just a paycheck. The second trend is, is changing families. And you know, if we think about Um, women now are having kids uh, they're having fewer children they're having them later and having them closer together and actually the dynamic within the family is changing because obviously men in as fathers are really finding and I think it's a very positive step and Jimmy you are a personification of this trend I may say really finding their identities as fathers rather than just workers and breadwinners and so you've got within millennial family dual income households you know rich and poor can't live on one income alone these days you've got educated women and you've got um, fewer children but happening at a point when women seem to feel like they should be in a certain position in their career but also men wanting to help out as fathers so actually that period in your career as women where you are looking after small children is actually quite a shortened period but actually for millennial families the big uh, responsibility isn't going to be looking after your kids it's going to be looking after your parents because as I said we have got a society that is basically an inheritance economy you've got all of the wealth um um, within the boomer generation now that wealth is going to hopefully trickle down or oh, some of it will go to the treasury but some of it will trickle down and also you've got an aging society so uh, you know people talk about the social care crisis as if it's a old people's problem it's not it's a, a young people's problem and and if the bank of mum and dad is funding millennial uh, house buying then Millennials are going to have to step up and look after their parents. So actually, companies need to be thinking about how the family is changing because suddenly doing the school run, yes, is going to be important to incorporate both for mothers and fathers, but so is doing the care home run. Mm-hmm. And 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 so actually, um, but also grandparents doing the school run. You know, the we've spent the last 18 months where the work life has been filtering into the home we need to spend the next five years enabling the home life to infiltrate the workplace and 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 actually create a work culture in which the family which by the way has never been more economically intertwined and culturally closer is recognized within company culture and at the moment it's not I don't I I you know I I feel like Gen X pioneers of of professional women talking about maternity leave work-life balance and all of that god we're at like the beginning stages of that I want millennial fathers to have the same confidence in a meeting to say I've got to go and do the school run you know so I want I want the normalization as we've seen of the professional female I want the normalization of the domestic male in the workplace but also as I said that Reflecting the changing ref- um, roles of the family. But then also, the third stage, which is happening and trend that will impact the workplace, is we are completely evolving how we are living. So, baby boomers had, based on the male breadwinner, what's called the three stage life. So, you know, they had all their education and training up until the age of 21. They were lucky to go to university, which far from being the majority of them. They had that middle stage, that second stage, where they were in the workplace building pensions. Gosh, what a privilege. Um, Buying houses. Gosh, what a privilege. And then they had that third stage, retirement. Well, retirement is going to look very different for millennials and Gen Zs. I don't believe we're going to be able to retire in our 60s. I don't even really believe we're going to be able to retire in our 70s. I think what we're seeing is that idea of finishing your education at 21 isn't a reality. One degree doesn't cut it. And also we, because of AI, because of robotics, we're going to be have to constantly be upskilling. So education is going to be a massive part of our um work, working life. Caring, both male and female, massive part of our working life. Retirement, I think we're not going to need a retirement for golf courses, grandchildren and cruises in a way that the boomers are having. Because hey, we did all that traveling in our 30s and 20s we're going to want and need a social care package for when our mind and our bodies stop working and i think that's what retirement looks like and and people assume that retirement is like this right it's it's only it was only invented in the early 20th century it's a relatively new phenomenon that we retire from work and you know and and i think so therefore the notion of retirement is going to be hugely disrupted in 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 the next sort of 10 years as millennials seize power and, and realise that actually what they want is very different. And so what we're effectively seeing, I think, and we'll see, is that breakup between your age in the workplace being synonymous with your stage. And so why not? Can we have apprentices in their 60s because they're going to be working for 20 years? Why not have, you know, leaders in their 20s because they're dealing with technology that they've had in the palm of their hands since they were early teens? So, you know, I think we're in a really disruptive stage as fitting the work cycle around our new 21st century life cycle.
0: You talk there about life as a stage and that seems a good segue to talk about your new podcast it's all relative which has just launched in the last couple of weeks because the first guest that you had on of course was julian fellows so talk us through a bit about the the concept of the of the podcast and because it's brilliant for those that haven't listened to it and what has been the kind of findings that you've had in the first few episodes
1: Thank you for this free advert. Um, So I wanted to launch a podcast because I felt that so much of the chat around generation gap and intergenerational unfairness was sort of boomers versus millennials, um, really trite conversations about there's a generational war, there's not a generational war, boomers have got all the money, you know, all of this kind of like tussle that really, I think, was very unhelpful. Um, and didn't really get us anywhere. And actually I wanted to discuss generational shifts within the context that everyone could understand, which is family. So uh, the concept of the podcast is It's All Relative, Trick is in the name, the pun. Is, and it's based on interviewing two members of the same family from different generations to discuss their contrasting lives and beliefs and values. And the first episode we had Julian Fellows and he was fascinating because, of course, he was the writer and creator of Downton Abbey. And class has been at the kind of center of his writing Um throughout his career and he comes from you know upper middle class very distinct traditional culture but he was really great i mean he was talking about the continual importance of class divides the the stagnation of social mobility but also things like you know how he he said that politically i've always been a conservative but actually as i've got older i've become more liberal and more accepting of difference and diverging experiences. And I thought that was really interesting because one assumes that as you get older you become more socially conservative. But actually he was saying, you know, I classify myself as as, you know, politically conservative but socially liberal. And and also his his niece, Jessica Fellows, was talking about how the generational disconnect she felt with younger feminists around social media, cancel culture, um the me too movement. And she was quite honest because she said, you know, I I see myself as a feminist but I can't connect with modern feminism but I can also appreciate why they're challenging what we accepted. So she was sort of beautifully articulate in explaining that kind of like push and pull of, of I can I get modern feminism but I also feel like I don't get it and I feel like that is where we need to be whether it's in the home around the dinner table um in the workplace, in the commentariat or in politics where actually what I'm interested in is can you be a bridge? Can we as, as, as people, as individuals, as, as employees understand and talk to different generations without patronising them or dismissing them? Because quite often, you know, you will talk to someone younger and you'll go, you'll learn. Wait till you get kids. Wait till you have a mortgage. You know, that naivety and that enthusiasm and that energy will go. Or, you know, when you're talking to, you know, a boomer, my mother, who I'm living with at the moment, it will be like, "Mom, times have changed. You know, we're no longer calling the, you know, the internet, the world wide web, you know, and it's, it's that weird thing is it can you compute that to, you know, to my four year old son, Netflix is boring. It's too much choice. To yeah. me, it's like, oh, my God, this is revolutionary. And and to a 21-year-old, the smartphone isn't technology. Just like to my mom, the kettle is not yeah. technology. And so we need to kind of generate that understanding, and it's easy easier done within the family than anywhere else, of we're all a product of our time. Whether you grew up with three TV channels or your own YouTube channel, we're just a product of our time. And that is what interests me not all millennials love avocados all gen Zers, you know are on tiktok and and that that is you know how has time shaped your experience because we are all a product of our time
0: and yeah it's awareness how big do you think the shift of covid and the pandemic will be i mean my Thesis, as I've said a number of times on the podcast, is every 30, 40 years, the British state goes through a big shift. Foundation of the Labour Party, early 20th century, World War II, Clement Attlee, building of the welfare state, post-World War II, 1970s, 80s, Thatcherism, rollback of the state. And we are at that moment again. I mean, I actually thought Brexit in of itself... You
1: said, but you said that in 2010, I remember.
0: <laughs> I know. Well, I was saying... No, no, I said in 2015. I said in 2015 <laughs> that I didn't think that David... I thought we would do this again. And I didn't think that David Cameron or Ed Miliband were going to do it. And I think you look at that election now and, you know, Ed Miliband's big promise was to knock a few quid off tuition fees. Like, it was pretty uninspiring and obviously 2016 represented a real kind of globalization kickback Mm. and it's how big is it how big is it now or is it as as always how much of it is symptomatic of just what is going on
1: i think i think we need to be wary of finding rhythm in history Mm. you know every 34 years we all go oh let's shake things up i think um it's really striking i've just watched the Blair Brown, this is a very UK specific reference, Um, a Blair Brown documentary about New Labour. And it's striking how the real legacy of Blair is the Northern Ireland peace agreement. And the real legacy of Brown is that he was the right man at the right time at the financial crisis. And everything else, I mean, there was a lot of good stuff done under New Labour, but you kind of just feel like it all seems irrelevant And actually just part of a broader build-up towards Brexit. And likewise, I read a a book about Cameron's government. And one of the things that struck me again was, you know, all the sort of love-in with China, um, all this kind of embracing of tech. There was a real moment, coalition, Cameron, government, where um, all of it now just seems quite old-fashioned and out out of sync. You know, we've got the tech tech clash and the Sino kind of backlash. So... So it's remarkable how things, you know, I think Brexit is the real, it will be the real turning point, but it will be a long pivot. But yes, I will add that Brexit will will probably align itself with with COVID and as, as the turning point for change. And I mean, one of the things I would say about COVID is that it's, it's how it's affected each generation, right? So I think for the boomers who are, You know, not to be too morbid, you know, having their last dance on the public stage before they bow out. I mean, their political power, not just in the UK, but in the US, is definitely waning. Um, You could say that Donald Trump is probably... um, the last well uh, Biden hang on a minute (laughs) um um, but you know it's it's they the boomers are waning in terms of their political power and weight and you can feel that transition happening here and one of the things that was striking for my own family is my boomer mother insisting that she was not vulnerable and she was not in the vulnerable category and I was like mum you're 75 you are and it's that 60s children in the 60s actually never thinking they grow old And I think so for them, they're finally beginning to feel vulnerable. And a lot of families I know, their millennial kids stepped up and started asking about wills, started asking about inheritance, started asking about their health in ways they hadn't. I think you've got also um, Gen X who, as I said, the squeezed generation, who were well, the generation actually who suffered the most during the financial crisis, are because they're at the forefront of the social crisis right now. I've just done a massive project on widowhood and actually talking to Gen X women about how they see their old age. And it's very different from boomers. And because a lot of their parents are in social care, they are very conscious in a way that boomers aren't about what old age looks like for them and that they don't want to end up like their parents and i think covid has accelerated that and of course that affects where they live how they save money how they spend how they think about work and then i think millennials
0: what would you screw before that what was that stat you had in your new yeah so i mean this is day.
1: striking i mean this is just striking um this isn't gen x but this is a by 2025 um 60 percent of the nation's wealth in the uk nation's private wealth within the UK will be in female hands. And that's mostly in widow's hands. So any entrepreneurs out there that are really frustrated about a lack of investment in female led businesses should really tap into that. (laughs) Um, Because widows are going to be the new power brokers in society for sure. But you've got also millennials who let's remember they're hitting 40, Mm -hmm. right? And the majority of them did not do this lockdown, this COVID pandemic in flat shares with their mates. They did it in small flats with small children and in dual income households where the big argument was about who got the desk (laughs) and who did the 6 a.m. to 1 p.m. shift and who did the 1 p.m. to 6 p.m. shift with the kids. And so you've got... um, That demographic, who actually, I think, are quite conservative anyway, particularly as they enter midlife, are thinking very differently about where they live, how they work, and how they spend. Millennials were the demographic that saved the most money during the pandemic lockdown. And then you've got Gen Z, and they're the most important because actually there are more of them. And you've got, interestingly, within the UK, a youth bulge coming through. And, and a lot of them are part of that EU migration. Um, And you've also got a much more 33% of them are from ethnically diverse backgrounds. You've got a real melting pot, um, an entrepreneurial forthright generation who speak truth to power who have um, very different values from their millennial counterparts I think they're very activist generation we've seen them really raise their voice over the last 18 months and I think because there are a lot of them I think quite quickly you're going to see the generational divide not between boomers and millennials I think you're going to see a real tension between millennials who want that kind of suburban existence thank you very much <laughs> and gen z are gonna go let's rock the world and change the system and you know it's it's where the votes are where the votes are where the money goes and i think that's going to be really interesting in the next five to ten years and that youth bulge is going to peak in 2030
0: two quick fire ones to finish with um Favourite book that you've read recently and passing the mic to another entrepreneur, another interesting person.
1: So actually one book I have read, which has actually changed my language, um, is Philippa Perry's. The book you wish your parents had read and your children will be glad that you did. And I i am um, a massive fan of Grayson Perry and Philippa Perry as well, by extension. But um, it's a really beautiful book where she talks about just the language that you're using with your children and and just how to be mindful of it, but also be really conscious of where you've come from and the parenting that you experienced and how that filters into your own parenting, both good and bad. And that is about, you know, breaking and continuing that generational transference of knowledge. And I'm really interested in like, you know, We're all a product of our time, but we also have to understand the time that's gone before and the time you're going to pass on the future. And um, I think she writes about that through the prism of parenting just really beautifully.
0: And passing the mic.
1: So I'm going to say Candice Brathwaite. Yeah. Who is a mummy influencer, an incredibly articulate, emotional advocate for black women For women generally, for health and fitness and just, I just love her posts and I think she's brilliant. And she brings with it a rawness and a humanity to everything she does that I'm in awe of because I don't think I would be able to expose and open myself up like that online in the way that she does. And I'm glad she does because... I find it extremely inspiring.
0: Well, that sounds like a very intriguing guest. Get
1: her on. She's brilliant.
0: I will, I will try. Sometimes not always easy with these people <laughs> that get sort of suggested for it. But um, Eliza, it's been brilliant to have you on. Um, people should definitely check out your uh, new podcast. It's all relative. First episode with the fellows is great. What's the second and the third episode? Yeah, the
1: second episode is with Dame Prue Leith of the Great British Bake Off with her daughter, Lida Kruger, um, uh, her adopted daughter, who was adopted and was actually flown out of Cambodia, one of the last flights out of Cambodia um, as the Cambodian Civil War was kicking off and the Khmer Rouge was basically enacting genocide on the Cambodian population. So it's a a fantastic insight into just a family how they dealt with adoption how they dealt with intergenerational trauma Prue Leith is a South African grew up in apartheid but also like contrasting feminisms within 20th century Britain uh, you know whether it be girl power or Germaine Greer so there's lots in there
0: amazing well we'll check it out Eliza thank you very much
1: thank you it's been so fun thanks
0: Thank you for listening to this episode in the third series of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Word of mouth is everything in the audio world. So if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and send us to a friend. You can find us at Jimmy's Jobs on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also check out our website at www.jobsofthefuture.co for our episode archive, blog posts, and more. If you are a new listener, do look through our previous episodes. We've interviewed entrepreneurs disrupting industries from fintech to hospitality to modern engineering. So whatever sector you're interested in, there'll be something for you there. If you'd like to get in touch, please email us at hello at jobsofthefuture.co. Thanks to our producer, Leo Danchak and thanks to George Dick for the artwork.